0: We're reading our way through the book of Acts, and um, I suppose every now and again it's just helpful to remind yourself who Luke was writing for, because that'll help us read it well. So when Luke begins his book, he writes it to a person called Theophilus, Um, and no one's really quite sure whether that's an actual person or whether it's kind of like a... A nickname that suggests a type of person. Because really what that name means is lover of God. And so some people wonder, well, maybe Luke's sort of like almost making up someone that he's writing to. Like he could be writing to you, lover of God. And you would be Theophilus. Or it could actually be an individual. But that's a little bit beside the point. The point I really want to make is, it's an obvious point, he's writing to people who are part of churches sort of 30 years after the events that he's talking about. So when Luke's bringing together all the stories he could tell, he's doing it carefully because he wants to tell you something about not just what happened back then, but why it was important. It's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever been trapped with someone who gives you too much information do you know when you, you ask them and they tell you this long, long, long story and you kind of want to go, yeah? And it's kind of like they give you too much because, no, just cut to the chase. And in a sense, what Luke is doing is cutting to the chase, but he's, the things he chooses to tell us then become more important because of what he's included in. And so here we are together 2,000 years later. Reading about our ancestors. We're reading about our early family. We're, re- we're reading and thinking and praying our way into this early church. And Luke would almost want to say, listen, don't, don't read too quick. Don't miss what I'm wanting to tell you. Because actually, I'm telling you some stories that actually are quite significant. So we're going to pick it up at chapter 6, but just before we do, just to remind ourselves what's happened. So Jesus has ascended, chapter 1. Chapter 2, the Spirit has come, and 3,000 people have uh, been added to this number of Jewish Christians, as they were at that time. Jews who believed in Jesus and followed him as Messiah. This grouping has sort of created a a subgroup and they're meeting together regularly they're sharing what they have together they're praying they're becoming essentially a church and then in chapter three you've got that miracle that happens when Peter and John are on the way to the temple the guy gets healed and that triggers a whole number of things not least they go before the authorities they have to defend themselves they're told not to speak any longer they said we can't do that And so they're put in prison overnight. The end of chapter four, the believers get together and they pray, and the place where they pray is shaken. The spirit is with them in such an extent. And Luke reminds us again that they shared what they had in common. And then, chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira, well, they try and lie, but it brings death. Many people are healed, and then in the rest of chapter 5, they're persecuted, and they're put back in prison again. And then in chapter 6, it is going to be really weird if you sit there. (laughs) There's a whole roar here, but anyway. Um, In chapter 6, Luke tells us a story about church rotors, Essentially. Tells you a story about church rotors, And then the next thing he's going to tell you is about Stephen, who gets, does, a, does a, a, a speech about how God's not linked to a place, but is actually bringing people from all over the world to himself. And then he gets stoned, and then Saul is there, and he becomes Paul, and all that. So you've got these big, but the point I'm wanting to make is you've got these big, exciting stories, and then a story about a church rotor. So why does Luke tell us the story? Well, let's read it first. In those days, when the number of disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. They presented them to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Do you remember when you were a kid? Did any of you have growing pains? (laughs) Do you remember you used to go to your mum and you'd say, oh, oh this was I did." I remember say, "Look, my legs are really hurting," and she'd just say, "It's growing pains," and and it was like, it was like, well, what can we do? And it was like nothing. You just have to grow. Well, I I stopped after a while, as you can see, but it was like there, there didn't seem to be any reason for them, but they just really did hurt. And my mum told me it was growing pains. I've actually done a, a... I did some research on growing pains for this sermon. And they do exist. It wasn't just my mum. I wondered if she was just putting me off. But it, it, it's not. It's true. There's no, there's no cure for it. You just, it's just part of growing. It's just part of you being who you are. It's part of becoming something. And in a sense, this is a story of the growing pains of church. When churches grow... Like everything that grows, it brings pains. And Luke tells you this. There are practical issues. There's supernatural attack. And it's inevitable from time to time, there's conflict. And that's what this chapter is about, or this early part of the chapter is about. There's practical issues for them. Actually, we've got so many people. How are we going to deal with the people we've got? But there's a supernatural element of this because if you've been reading closely the story so far, you know that the story that Luke's been telling you about the church has been that initially the church is persecuted to try and push it back into place. Persecution is really happens when um, a group of people say, We don't want to live like the culture says, and then the existing culture says, Well, we want you to conform. And so we'll try and squeeze you into our mold. And if a group says, no, well, we're not going to be like that, then inevitably what happens is the culture says, then we will ostracize you or we will make it difficult for you. In other words, we will persecute you. And that's what was going on in this early church. Because essentially, these people who were saying Jesus is Messiah, at that time, were then at odds with the culture around. So there was this sort of attempt... To persecute and then that didn't work because actually they carried on and so then you've got Ananias and Sapphira whose hypocrisy and loss of integrity could have brought the whole church down and that doesn't work so here you've got the conflict and any of these things can bring a church down now this is where I think this is what, what this is these are my thoughts about all of that for most of us, we've grown up not having to stand out from the culture. Most of us at a certain age, if you of my sort of age, most of us have lived in a way where culture has been really benign. And it's not been difficult to be a Christian. People might roll their eyes a bit or think you're a bit odd. But to be honest, that might have something to do with other things other than being a Christian. But to be honest, it's been a benign culture. Now that might change. It might change. Because increasingly, people like you and me might look like extremists. And I don't, I'm, not of the, I'm not of the school that's sort of like, ah, do you know what I mean? I'm not like everything's a disaster. I'm not of that opinion at all. But I'm just recognizing that actually, as the culture moves, we might actually find ourselves going, we stick out more now. We stick out more. But I think people of my generation... What we have experienced is not been persecution, but what we have experienced is more naturally the sense that actually we could lose our integrity. That's where I think the enemy has most attacked us. So in other words, it's the idea of being religious but not relational. The idea of saying you stand for something but not actually doing it. and, you know, and the longer you go and the more you hear about things that are being uncovered from our lifetime in church, you go, to be honest, that's, that was how the devil attacked us. Because we tried to present this front, but we acted like that. And it's, it's, always, it's always the big three, isn't it? It's always money, sex, and power. And I think that's where the enemies tried to attack us. And, and I think that's where we failed. Sometimes, but the other area has been in conflict, and the thing that I think the devil really does get a a, a foothold is, is actually, as things are going really well, and actually, what happens is there's a conflict, there's a relational conflict. And some of us know how easy you can find yourself in that. And it only takes a few words or a few misplaced words or just for you to say things that are in your head that would be better stayed in your head. Do you know what I mean? You just over speak. You just say some stupid stuff. You, some words get out that actually are really difficult to get back again. And you're in conflict. We are no different than any of the churches that have gone before us. And every now and again, it's not harmful to remind ourselves that we're in a spiritual battle and the enemy would want to neutralize what we are. And it may come from pressure from outside, but it's much more likely to come from pressure within. Be alert to that. Be aware of that. Know how you're going to deal with it. Back to the passage, though. What's going on? Well, there's an issue between two groups of um, widows. You've got, on the one hand, you've got the Hebrew, or in some of your um, Bibles, it will say Aramaic speaking, which is just the language they use. So they come from Palestine. They're sort of Hebrew background. They belong in this land. And then you've got what are called the Hellenistic or the Greek-speaking widows. Now, they come from all around. They've got a different background. They've got a different culture, they've got a different language, and more particularly, they've got a history of rivalry between the Jewish speaking, uh, not the Jewish background, the uh, Aramaic speaking, and the Greek speaking people have got this background of rivalry. These are the two groups who've come to know Jesus. So out of the 3,000 who trust in Jesus on the day of Pentecost, it's people from these groups. Out of the numbers of people who are being attracted to Jesus, it's these groups of people, it's these people. And these people are widows, which means that they're at the bottom of the rung. They have no one to defend them. So they can easily be overlooked, but they actually need the most help. In our culture, at the moment, the most obvious example of that sort of person would be someone seeking asylum. Or someone whose asylum seeking has been turned down, but they're trapped. In other words, there are people who have no rights, they have no advocates, they have no one to protect them. That's the equivalent of the widow. Now the really interesting thing is, these people are in the church, and the church are feeding them. Because one of the things that the church was doing right from the beginning, do you remember after the Spirit has been poured out on the day of Pentecost, what's happening? Verse 44 of chapter 2, all the believers were together. They had everything in common. Chapter 4, the same, uh, the end of chapter 4, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had And that's where Barnabas sold some of his land and some of his property. And he brought it, the money from the sale, put it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to anyone who had need. Who had need? Widows had need. And that's where Ananias and Sapphira come in. So in other words, one of the things that the church are doing from the earliest days is they're saying, who's the weakest members of our community? And can we actually... Can we support them? And of course, that group are growing. Because they would, wouldn't they? Because here's a community that cares for them. Just by the by, at the end of that passage I read in verse 7, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith in the context of the number of disciples growing rapidly. One of the writers of the day was called Josephus, and he suggests... He's writing at the time that Luke's writing about, that there were 17,000 priests living in Palestine at that time who didn't have an income. So so these priests are going, I'd like to become a Christian. (laughs) Now, can you hear the pressure on the community? Because... The the pressure on the community is twofold. Firstly, it's you've got all these people that actually one of your core values is we're going to care for one another, we will provide for one another. And now you're being, in a sense, you're being stretched. Are you with me? Okay. So let me just put some in brackets. (laughs) When Paul is writing to Timothy later... In 1 Timothy, later. This situation continues about the widows to the extent that they've begun to introduce some rules about who constitutes a widow. Now, when we read it, it can sound a little strange. Because it's like, if you're under the age of 60, ladies, you don't count as a widow. Presumably, because Paul and Timothy still think you've got a chance. 61, hey. If you have a family, Paul will say to Timothy, if you have a family, it's your family's responsibility to care for you. If your family are a Christian and they're not supporting you, then actually that's a real big problem. And uh, Close bracket. Now what's happening in that context is the church are recognising, actually, we're going to have to put some principles in place, almost some rules in place to know how to, because otherwise we're going to get swamped. We can't. So that's why they're doing that. It's kind of like wisdom, really. But that doesn't take away the central point that the church from the beginning said, we want no needy people here. We want no needy people here. But... As happens, there became a conflict. And the conflict was about, actually, about who got what. It's the sort of conflict that you see in microcosm. This is so far removed from what's going on here, by the way. But you know that moment where, and it's happened because I've heard it, where you go to coffee and you got talking to someone first and you get there and all the biscuits that are left are just rich tea. Because everybody else has taken the chocolate ones. Now, I'm not going to ask for a confession. But you know that feeling of, well, bloomin' You know that feeling when you do, and, and this for some of us go, who go back a while, we will remember. We went through a period where we used to have church lunches together. And it was really difficult at times. Because some folks would come with a large family and bring one bag of crisps, and then be the first in the queue, and they'd have big plates of food. And some of us who held back, family hold back, that sort of stuff, we ended up with the crisps that they brought, which weren't even Walkers. Um, and you know how that <laughs> roller coaster. You know how that. You know how that gets under the skin. And that's what was going on here. There's an argument because uh, the Hellenistic ones, the Greek-speaking, the the, the ones who felt a little bit more like an outsider, they say um, they complained against the Hebrew, the Aramaic speakers, because they said, actually, our widows are getting overlooked. So how do you solve a problem like this? Well... You can freeze one side out. That's how you solve a problem like this. You just get rid of one side. And human nature being what human nature is, we know how to freeze people out. You can give up the food bank. You can say, this isn't working. We can't do it. Or you can do things differently. And that's, of course, what they did. Conflict matters. There's some things that, doesn't really, that shouldn't really matter. There's, I've said it lots of times, but there's some things where just tolerance would go a long way. Do you know what I mean? It's like not everything needs to be a major drama. But conflict matters when the basic issue is about our basic identity. And this was about the basic identity for the early church. Because they said our core value Is the resurrection of Jesus where everything is new. A multi-ethnic community. The spirit has been poured out upon all people. And no one's in need. So that's why this conflict is such a big deal. Because it it goes right to the core of who they wanted to be. If they'd have frozen out one side and just become a mono-ethnic group. They wouldn't have been what they knew God had meant them to be but it would have been more comfortable. It's always more comfortable when you're just with people like you. If that is said, we can't do the food bank, then I, and, and therefore we can't really do this, this practical care. it's just not sensible, that would have struck at the heart of what it meant to be this new community. Conflict matters when it goes to the heart of your identity, and that's what's going on. So what, what was the new thing that happened? Well, it's fairly obvious, but the implications, I think, are quite interesting. The first thing is that this has, is a complaint about the 12 apostles. If you've got a Bible, just flip back with me to chapter 4, verse 35. Verse, yeah, verse 34 verse 35. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, they brought the money from the sale, they put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, these 12 apostles, these people who've been with Jesus, these people who are sort of like, the, like leading the church, they've been the ones that have been distributing the money. But as the church grows, these 12 can't do it. So ultimately, this is a complaint about the apostles. So the apostles recognize we need a different ministry. Now, because the New Testament is written in Greek and because we translate into English, sometimes we miss some of the clever wordplay that happens. And I never want to be the sort of preacher who bangs on about that. But every now and again, it's worth pointing it out. And it's worth pointing it out here because of what happens. There's a word that we translate in three different ways But it's the same word in the original document. And it's that word diakonia, which means ministry or service, diakonia. And it comes up three times. It comes up in verse 1 when they complained because the widows were being overlooked in the daily. Now we said distribution of food. Originally just diakonia of food. And it comes up in verse 2, the 12 say, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. It's a diakonia word, which is the waiting on tables. And in verse 4, they say, we'll turn over this responsibility to other people to do this, and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word, diakonia of word. Now, do you see? The significance for me of that is, What the disciples, what the apostles are saying is, it's not that we're too good to do the uh, food bank. It's actually what we need is a, a wider range of people who are all doing the ministry. We're all doing the ministry the ministry of waiting on tables is the same as the ministry of the word. It's not like one's better than the other. It's actually that we're all doing ministry. It's just that we, we know what, where we fit. And that's the significance of that particular word. The apostles could have done something different. They could have said, okay, we hear your pain. We'll try harder. Because leaders tend to think they can fix everything. The danger for leaders in church is to take too much responsibility. We take over responsibility. So everything that's a problem, the danger is, one of the dangers. One of the dangers is we try and fix everything by just trying to work harder. What happened here was interesting because the apostles came to the church community and said we have a problem we have a problem and the community can solve it now the part of me (laughs) there's a non-spiritual part of me that goes (laughs) the apostles probably said forget it you sort it (laughs) we're up to here. you have a go but i don't think it was like that I, I, I bet there's a bit of that going on I think what probably was going on was like no this is a moment where actually things need to change this is like a tipping point in the work of the church it's a very subtle tipping point but things change at this point because no longer is it just about 12 apostles trying to do everything It's now about a community saying, yeah, we can solve this. So listen to what they do. I I read it before, but verse three, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So it's not even that the apostle says, well, we'll choose seven. It's actually, no, you choose seven. We'll give you the person's spec. The person's spec is they need to be full of the Spirit and they need to be really wise. And the wisdom is practical. They need to be able to know what to do. They've got to be able to sort this problem out. We don't want just people full of the Spirit who can pray about it. We need someone who can actually distribute food so that no one has to complain anymore. It's the Spirit and the wisdom. We probably need seven of you maybe a number of reasons why it was seven. So as one of the leaders here, I would want to say one of the tasks of the church is to remind those of us who do have responsibilities that we're not omnicompetent. We need people to tell us, Neil, you can't do it. Clearly. Clearly. <laughs> you you can do that in two ways you can clearly tell us and you can say it's evident you can't do it it's the task of the community to remind the leaders that they are not all competent it's the task of the community to say we have a problem we will actually deal with this Otherwise, you get some people take over responsibility, and some people take under-responsibility. And actually what's going on here is, no, we will take responsibility together. And in a growing context, that happens more and more and more. And you can see how that works out. Let me just give you some really simple examples. So it's really interesting today, because there are empty seats. And there's some of you going, I wonder where, and you can name them. And you wonder where they are, because it's a genuine, I wonder where they are. I wonder how they are. And it's the next act that's really interesting. What's the next bit of that conversation in your head? Is it, hmm, that's interesting. Is it to tell And if there's a choice, Natalie's away ministering in Poland uh, with Sam this weekend. So you could bring her, or you could tell Ian. I think those are your options. (laughs) (laughs) And essentially what you do is then you give the problem to someone else. or you say, actually, I can do something here. And it's the difference between when you recognize what's going on, who do you give the problem to, and what problems do you say, I can actually pick this one up? Now, I'm only saying this because of the passage we're in. So it's not like I'm choosing this passage randomly because we've got an issue. It's, but that's the principle that's going on in the passage. Does that make sense? We need each other... To heal, to love, to grow, to look more like Jesus. That's the need of a growing church. It's not about what your ministry is. It's about actually what is the need of the community at this time and how can I respond to that? What is it that actually we bring together that says in this context, this is what needs to happen? One last thing about this passage This this kind of interest, of of some interest to me, is that the people that the community choose—they all seem to have Greek names. So they they choose from the group of people who feel like they've been overlooked. So there is real wisdom, actually, because they're trying to rebalance the thing. You're all needed. There's not one of us that's not needed. And it's knowing what do we offer and how do we offer it. It's not everybody doing their own thing, but it's working together. But it's recognizing that actually in a growing context where there will be issues, there will be rubbing points, there will be stretch points. Actually, how do we, how do we respond? And then finally, uh, verse 7. Uh, of that little passage, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And Luke does that as a summary statement on six occasions. And it's just interesting to note where his six occasions are. So Luke is writing this, and every time he gets to the end of one part of his story, he does that summary again. And there's this one. There's one after Saul's conversion. There's one after the conversion of Cornelius, this Roman centurion that blows people's minds. One after the Jerusalem council meeting where they get together and they really have to hammer out. What are we going to do when we're seeing people come to faith who are not like us? One happens after Paul's second and third journeys when he's been um, tossed about and he's been uh, sort of like beaten up and left for dead. And actually he comes back and he tells them what happened. And then finally, at the end, when Paul's in prison. And it's interesting to me, at least, that it could be read that each of these growth summaries happen after a period of pain. they, they all happen after a period of pain or confusion or, wow, I didn't think that was going to happen like that. So in other words, you go through these times and actually if you respond well to them, then what happens is God gives you more. Or you settle back and you go, this is beyond our ability. And the book of Acts suggests that you go. So what might I want to finish with? And then we've probably got a little time just to reflect on it. Growth always brings a challenge. Always brings a challenge. And the challenge is, do we want to go to the next stage or do we want to just get knocked out and stay? Where it feels safe. Core values matter. The temptation amongst us is to forget our basic identity. What are we really about? And those things are really worth holding on to. It's about the ministry of the whole church. But Luke would want to remind us that actually growth follows the pain and the moments of pain. Church is not without pain. It's knowing how you deal with it. And what's God doing in the middle of it? And what does he want of us? As we move through that, so the question that I often ask and that uh, I'm interested in is What are you thinking? What makes sense? What what what's the relevance? What's what are you thinking? Brilliant. What are you thinking? What strikes you as interesting? What
1: I'm wondering how. Um, I was wondering how. Uh, Christian groups like those who adhere to the prosperity gospel or faith gospels explain away situations where they are experiencing pain, whether they're dismissive of it or whether they do see it as you've just explained it?
0: I don't know, I think that, um, I don't know. I don't know how others would do it. I think the temptation is to try and explain away I think there's a danger when you try and explain away the moments of pain or the moments of struggle, and I don't doubt for a moment that the the enemy, the devil, wants to use them for ill. But actually, sometimes it's a moment where it's not that just that the devil's attacking you; it's actually that God's giving you an opportunity to do something completely new. And I think if you put everything down to it's just the devil attacking us, then actually it stops you thinking through well what might be happening here. And so the But of course, if you you just think it's the devil attacking you every time, then what that gives you is a sense of, no, we're always right. Whereas actually here, they clearly weren't always right. They needed to say, no, we're not. We're at a moment where we need to change again. So I think it's, I don't know how other people do it, but I just know the temptation of not being alert to what the Spirit says. And it's interesting that in a context where... As a church, one of the things we're wanting to say to one another is we want to be alert to what the Spirit is saying. One of the ways the Spirit speaks is actually in the midst of the difficulties that a church will go through. But if you don't actually ask one another, what do you think God might be saying to us in the middle of it, you might miss the moment of something significantly new happening. do not quite answer your question, but it was a jolly good answer. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah, Lorna, keep going.
2: my thought was sort of how do we apply that practically to here and they murmured about about something very specific didn't they they came with a particular thing and the thought that went through my head was what are the particular things that you guys are hearing murmuring about that maybe we need to address how can we practically apply what
0: we've just been learning about yeah that's a good question
1: Since that
0: was such a good answer, give it try it again with that one. That was a better question. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So so one of the one of the ways we make sense of that good question. And, And and here's the my my gut reaction is I'm not preaching this because there's an issue that we're really aware of. So, I'm, do you know what I mean? I'm just preaching it because it's the next thing. <laughs> but, to your point, Lorna, what is the moment we're living in as a church? That's the question. And I think that's the question that we always need to be asking one another. So what, what moment are we? I mean, it's not about navel-gazing forever. But what is the moment? Now, there's things that I might... Personally, I might want to say, I think we've got some challenges. I think we've got some, I've got some concerns. But what's the moment? What might God be saying? Um, And I don't know whether, I don't know where that sentence leads now, if I'm honest. Um. But there is something about asking as a congregation. And I think then it's, then it's probably a moment to know what do you do with the feeling you have? Um, the temptation is for us then to. I mean, well, you know what the temptations are, don't you? The temptations are to, you know, just to get disgruntled. The temptations are just to gossip. The temptations are just to get a little bit down hard and disillusioned. But the way out of that is actually to bring it into the light. See, in a sense, the best thing that happened is that it became, in chapter 6, is that it became evident that there was a problem. That was the best thing that happened. So the best thing that happens in a church is when there is a problem, it becomes really apparent, now, sometimes over the years of being a pastor, there's been sort of like moments where I've just thought, can we just have it really nice and easy all the time? Do you know what I mean? There's days when everybody's smiling. That's great. But actually, if that's always the way, that's probably as much of a problem as the days where it feels like you're in a storm. So there's moments where we need people to be brave enough and non judgmental enough and I think that's the other thing is how do you say there's a problem without it being and it's your fault in a way that closes down the conversation but actually to say I think we've got a challenge and I think this is the challenge and then for us to say okay let's actually listen to that together to try and work out what goes on and I think that's what healthy churches look like I think is what
3: healthy churches look like Maggie I think the, the the idea of everybody sharing everything was great, but this sort of situation threatened to derail it. Yeah. And, and the temptation would have been, well, it doesn't work and we can't do it. And, or the, the people's feelings come out, well, they only give to their own or that sort of thing. But I think the other temptation or the other feelings that can come out of this situation are, it was interesting when you said about the, the word was used, the diakonos word was mm-hmm. used to the same thing, cause those of us who have been brought up in churches where there were traditionally elders and deacons, which is darkness deacons, it's the sort of, it can engender feelings of, well, the elders were the really godly people who dealt with the high spiritual things. Whereas the deacons, well, I'm just a deacon. I just do all the dog body work around here. And I think that equally derails the sharing and the community and the living together. And and we can, I'm just the one that sweeps the floor every week, everybody mm-hmm. goes home and leaves me, or I'm just the one that serves tea and coffee, and nobody else does it, or I'm just the one that, Um. and we can get resentful, I'm I'm low down the line of things, mm-hmm. you know, it's alright mm-hmm. for the highfalutin preachers and godly people, but, you know, somebody's got to do it and I always end up doing it, and that derails the community yeah, as absolutely. well.
0: absolutely, absolutely, and I think that's exactly what's going on behind the, sort of, uh, in the text here, I think it is.
4: We've oh. <laughs> got a microphone. You might as well. <laughs> yeah. Cheers. Um, I was just thinking that we've identified one an issue in the church. And Bob, <clears throat> Bob was one of the people that did that. Obviously, when we talked about it with the weekend away, that one of the issues we we have got is that we we haven't cared so well for people that have been struggling. And we've 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 put a hundred percent. We haven't been doing that well enough. Um, so that's one of the issues that we face. But the good thing is that we're widening that out now. So you've got folks that you know, that care, that have expertise, that are being drawn together to say, we're not good enough to do it, me, you and Natalie, and one of, you know, and a couple of other people, we, that's not our gifting, that's not necessarily, we can't can't do everything, Mm -hmm. and we shouldn't do. And that's why bringing new people, people with wisdom, people with compassion, people that, you know, can look after the old elderly, people that can visit, you know, other people, that's, that's one of the things we're doing. And, and actually somebody rang me this week, on Friday actually, and said as well, when I was preaching, I talked about the fact that we've got a giving team. And it was actually an idea that LCC talked about, was that they always, they always have a, a percentage of their income each month that they give, that they give away to, not to necessarily to international things, but local people that they know are in need. And we decided we'd do that a few years ago. So somebody rang me this week and said, I've got this guy, I've been trying to help him, for a long time. He needs he needs financial and practical help more than I can give him. So he's been doing it anyway. He's not needed the church to sponsor him. He's just been doing it. But he's come to a situation where he can't do enough on his own. He needs to widen it out. And he said, Could we do something? So therefore I'm gonna go I'm not gonna solve it. I'm gonna go to the giving team and say, Okay guys, we've got an issue here. Is this something that we could give to? Does this do we feel God is in this? You know? And I think widening it out, I think that what's really key this is and it's a it's a challenge for me as well. Is that that we're a we're a priest a priesthood of believers. That we're we're all mm. ministers. Mm. Just because mm. we're paid by the church to do a job doesn't mean we're we're somewhere up here and you're down here. That actually we just got a particular role. Mm. Um, it's no less or more important than anybody else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Dave.
0: Oh, sorry. Well, those are. Oh, listen. It's like nothing, and then suddenly everything. <laughs>
2: Um, perhaps this is developing on um, Maggie's point a little bit, but um it seems like you know the first thing that you think of if someone was going to head up a food bank would not be um what are their spiritual credentials what mm. what you know background do they have in their faith and I think church can sometimes force people into one or two corners. it says you're either a practical person yeah who has these skills of being able to manage things or oversee things or you're a spiritual person, and um, you know we, we can't aspire to be that, so go and stand in that corner. And I think um, it, it makes it really clear that we can't decide to be either. We have to be both, mm. and uh, we can't keep making this dichotomy. I've been in churches where um, someone has come with, um, say, accounting knowledge, of how accounts are done best and what is good practice and how to sort of keep integrity, and it's been uh, sidelined because it's considered too too worldly.
1: Mm.
2: And I think the other end is also true that people have you know been sidelined because oh well that's just that that's a spiritual idea mm. but we need something practical. Mm. Um, and I'm just encouraged
1: that we need we need both.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah. Absolutely, thank you. Yeah
1: liked what you were saying about the modern day equivalent of the widows and the asylum seekers and the refugees, that's who our weakest members in society are. And then thinking about actually the solution to that wouldn't rest just within one church as well and how there's that real power in partnership. So if you look across Greater Manchester, some churches have got loads of asylum seekers and refugees in them and are possibly quite stretched and other churches haven't got any at all. Mm. And then how the solution to that it isn't just a on one church to support that group of people so people like Boaz who are a kind of pan church organization and how important it is that we support things that are kind of partnership led in order to still be part of that even if our own demograph isn't full of asylum seekers and refugees we still have to be part of that kind of shared solution outside of our own church community as well.
0: Do you know anybody who works in that sort of area at all? Do you know anybody who's uh, got no, but, any expression? Well, experience? Boaz. Uh, uh, yeah, that's the one
1: that sprang to mind, but I'm yeah. sure there's lots of organisations yeah. like that where there's a shared solution for the church to respond, even if it's not our immediate pressing need.
0: And that's a helpful reminder that actually it's not just about an individual congregation. It is about the church. So thank you. And there is
4: actually a really helpful resource that, that Boaz have, have recently produced along with another organisation called uh, How to Re- Re- Refugee Resourcing Church, I think it's called. There's a little red leaflet that we've been putting on the table. So if you've not picked one up, do pick one up.
0: Yeah. Last two. We're going to go to um, Elaine and, and Dave.
3: Well, um, I suppose it's a bit of a negative, really, but this. It, when it says um, we want to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The ministry of the word is fine, but the prayer bit, I'm not sure that you could say it the other way round, in that we want to wait on tables instead of prayer. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of, and I'm not sure that we can say, oh, yes, they're equal, they're equal, they're equal, but I'm not sure that we can say that we would ever feel that waiting on tables was equal to prayer. Spending time in prayer. I
4: don't
3: know. Yeah, and and
0: I think I think that's exactly what um, Luke does mean. And when we say, "I wonder whether it feels the same or it sounds the same," I think it probably reflects something about our sense of what a sacred secular divide looks like. So some things, and and Luke's clearly not saying. In fact, he's clearly not saying. I say it twice, he's clearly, or even a third time, he's clearly not saying that uh, people like Stephen and Philip are not going to be people full of prayer. Because we're going to meet Stephen again, and we're going to meet Philip again, and Stephen's going to get martyred, stoned. And Philip's going to meet a eunuch and open up the gospel in Ethiopia. So it's not that these people who are serving on tables, it's, it's Jill's point. It's not that they were just sort of like, well, you're practical, you get on with that. It's actually these were people full of the Spirit and wise. And it's just that the apostles are going, and we know our job. We just know our job. We know what our job is. It's not that our job is the, it's not that we're the only people who pray, but we know that we we need to be alert to God for the sake of the church. And we need to be able to preach in a certain way for the sake of the church. But it's not that no one else has to do that. So it's not either or. But I think, I think that point is a really important point. That some people, you feel diminished because you feel, well, I'm not that spiritual. But actually, it's the whole. It's the ministry. It's the diaconia. That's the point. Anyway, last one from uh, Dave, and then I'll sit down.
5: Um, so I, I was thinking that um, one of his points is that one group were, whether consciously or unconsciously, uh, neglecting another group. Yeah. And that's based on their culture. Yeah. And... I think that the further out that churches are from say a metropolitan center, um, I don't think we're very good at that. How do you accommodate different groups that come into church that may not be white British or going into say a black Afro-Caribbean church? Mm. How do they accommodate for people who are not black Afro-Caribbean? And it's looking at, like I say, whether it's a conscious or unconscious decision, you know, how do we do that as a church? Do When we have people from other cultures who come to our church, Do they feel comfortable here? Are we unconsciously neglecting them uh, in a similar way? Yeah. And yeah, absolutely. And I think that the posture
0: we need to take to one another is of open acceptance and a desire to know. A desire to know. I want to know you. Um, And that there's a cost involved with that of time, of effort, of invitation. Who do you invite for a meal? it's different than that. I am not
5: necessarily suggesting that we don't just do that. Um put some i I mean it's looking for those those solutions which you were talking about before, you know, it, if there are enough people from a particular group, is there anything wrong with them having their own house group? Not that you're wanting to cause division, but sometimes socially and culturally, we are more comfortable with people of a similar background. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all, um, because you meet as one, and that's not to say that you would have to do it, but it's just looking for those solutions to say, well, what works, what are other churches doing, and how would we do that? And I think to have the honest conversations about that thing are really helpful.
0: Thanks for the engagement. It's a small passage, but it raises the big questions about who we want to be.